From KIOS in Omaha and Exarban Creative, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. On today's show, I have a conversation with author Amy Bonifons, whose novel The Regrets came out this February. Both The Regrets and Bonifons' collection of short stories, The Wrong Heaven, are available wherever you get books. Her short story, Horse, was also adapted into a segment on This American Life in 2017. It feels sort of impossible not to write from the moment that we're in, but it also feels impossible to make sense of it yet. Bonifons discusses the strangeness of today's world consumed by pandemic and how this impacts her writing, which often deals with the surreal. After a break, stick around for my conversation with Amy Bonifons right here on Riverside Chats. Hey, I'm Kelly McEvers. The coronavirus pandemic is changing everything. How we work, how we interact, how we move around or don't, and how we deal with being caught up in that change, which is happening really fast. So to help you process it all, we have started a new podcast, a way for you to get the latest news and science on the pandemic. Because we think being informed is the best way to get through this thing. So every weekday, you will hear conversations and stories from NPR journalists who are covering the virus, the public health fight against it, and how the world is coping. In about 10 minutes, NPR will give you what you need to know about this fast-moving story. We're calling it Coronavirus Daily. You can find new episodes right here every weekday afternoon. Wherever or however you're listening to this podcast right now, you should take a moment and check out Stitcher. For those who don't know, Stitcher is a free podcast app for iPhone and Android and home to over 260,000 podcasts. Stitcher also has smart recommendations, playlists, a car mode, even a sleep timer. While the Stitcher app is free to use, they also offer a premium subscription called Stitcher Premium that has exclusive bonus episodes from top shows, exclusive shows from top hosts, and ad-free listening all for only $4.99 a month or $34.99 a year. Like pop culture, you can listen to exclusive bonus episodes from Getting Curious with Jonathan Van Ness or LeVar Burton Reads, plus get early access to episodes of The Dream, plus many more on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcher.com slash premium to sign up today and use promo code Riverside on the monthly plan to get your first month free. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I have a conversation with Amy Bonifons, author of the new novel The Regrets and the collection of short stories, The Wrong Heaven. A story from The Wrong Heaven, entitled Horse, was adapted into a segment on This American Life in 2017. Horse follows a woman drawn to a ranch that many women have started to go to, where they undergo a transformation to become horses. Here's a clip. Are the horses tame or wild? The horses at the ranch are wild. We provide nothing but acreage for running and grazing, We do nothing to break them. There are no harnesses, no bridles, no whips. Among other purposes, the ranch exists in order to cultivate wildness. What is wildness? And may wildness be cultivated? Isn't that a contradiction? That is what we're trying to find out. All we can say is, either you personally resonate with this desire or you don't. Either you like the idea of shaking off your restraints and are willing to give up everything you know in the attempt to do so, or you're like most people, comforted by language, by clothing, by laws. 
Walking around town with my hooves, I gained a new kind of attention. Women regarded me with disgust or envy, men with disgust or desire. Bonifant's new novel, The Regrets, came out in February and is a dazzling, darkly playful novel about a love affair between the living and the dead. I'm a huge fan of her work, and I was very excited to get the chance to talk to Amy Bonifons today. We did so over Zoom while social distancing in different states. Here's our conversation. Please enjoy. It's got to be a weird, it's a weird time for everything. The whole world is kind of in a weird spot. Uh, but in some ways, I imagine having to stay home all day can be good for a writer's routine. Has it been good for you? Strange, bad? Where is it? Where are you with all of this? Yeah, it actually is. It's strange. I've, I'm experiencing a lot of cognitive dissonance because on the one hand, it's like it's like we're, we're actually living in one of those apocalypse movies is what it feels like in the world and, and when I read the news. But on the other hand, in, in my own little world, I'm, you know, I'm set up very comfortably. I live in Athens, Georgia, where, um, which is not particularly hard hit yet, knock on wood. And, um, and there's plenty of places to walk outside without coming in contact to anybody. And, um, and so basically I can live my quarantine very comfortably. And as a writer and as an introvert, my life, my normal life, um, resembles this pretty closely <laughs> and and uh you know I was on book tour right before this began so I was actually exhausted um and really yeah experiencing this weird roller coaster of like anxiety about the world but also you know trying to just kind of accept the the opportunity to um to use this time to rest and to um, experience my life in a slower way and to write, um, although my writing has looked really different in this time than it normally does. So how is your writing looking different? How's it changing? It feels sort of impossible not to write from the moment that we're in, um, but it also it feels impossible to make sense of it yet. And so I find myself doing a lot, something that's a lot closer to journaling than I normally do. And, you know, it's some, something in between journaling and what I would think of as, as my writing process, uh, my normal writing process. Um, just been spending a lot of time, like, kind of sitting at my computer, or sitting with my notebook and just recording observations or what's been going through my head or my thoughts about what I've been reading and listening to and and how it all resonates with with the moment that we're in and I'm just trusting that um you know what I'm recording now will will become part of something and become part of what I'm eventually working on but whether or not it does it just feels important to sort of pay extra close attention this time and to to use my writing as a way of doing that yeah I was kind of curious because your work deals with sort of that mixture of the mundane and the surreal and the bizarre mm -hmm. is, is it helpful or does it, is it make it harder in some ways because the world is in such a strange place? I mean, to try to find even normalcy at this point to, to juxtapose with the bizarre. Yeah. It's interesting. You say that. I think what is, you know, the, the elements of my work that are, that are not normal or mundane, you know, like the more magical or myth like elements, those are ways of, sort of exploring or reflecting or describing some, not something that's opposed to reality, but something that's part of it, right? Um, 
for me. And this moment for me feels very, you know, it feels like a lot of things, but one thing that it feels like is very mythic. Like it feels like there's this way in which partly because of the the collective nature of the experience we're all having and partly just the bigness of it and partly the, the opportunity that it's giving us to respond in different ways, it feels very mythic. And so in a way it's felt easier than ever to sort of inhabit that that way of thinking and I'm sort of not not particularly interested in in going back to normal you know (laughs) I'm thinking more sort of like what is what is this I've been just trying to be attentive to like at least for me what is this moment opening up in terms of my imagination and in terms of my understanding of like sort of what's moving below the surface of our normal lives. Yeah. I mean, so you bring up mythic, um, are (laughs) myths something that you've studied a lot or, I mean, when did that sort of enter into your life as something to become well-versed in? You know, I I wouldn't say I'm not well-versed in myths. It's not something I studied formally ever, although I've always found myths really interesting. I guess I've, I'm drawn to writers who use either who use myth in their work or whose work feels like myth, even if it's, contemporary or new. Um, I just started reading Ben Ogre's new book, The Freedom Artist. And that that's a really great example of, of what I mean, because it feels like it, like it engages directly with existing myth, but it also feels like it, a new myth itself. And so, yeah, I, I wouldn't say I have an, any expertise <laughs> whatsoever on myth, but, uh, but it's something I'm interested in and something that um, it's sort of a register that, um, increasingly interested in spending time in. I mean, you are an academic person. So I mean, I feel like you can, as a published author and an academic, you, you, when you speak on myth, it it does sound like you have authority. It seems like you have authority. (laughs) Well, I'm I'm glad it seems that way, but it's not, (laughs) yeah, it's not no particular. I don't want to and have an expertise I don't actually have. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. So um, if we go back, I mean, you do you remember the first piece of writing that you really fell in love with? Ooh, like in my life? Yeah, just in general. No, I don't. But I, I mean, I remember some of them. Like as a kid, I read a lot and I really loved all the um, little house books and I loved Little Women. I must have read that book like a million times. Yeah, it's interesting because as a kid, I think what I what I really hungered for was stories about real people living very real lives and then only as I grew older did it I become more interested in the the magical or fantastical although I did really love uh as a kid my my mom gave me the the novel the princess bride you know that the movie Mm -hmm. is based on and I remember really loving that too it's kind of the opposite trajectory I feel like a lot of people start off loving fantastical things (laughs) and then at a certain point they're like no this is too exciting for me give me something more mundane yeah Um, yeah so when did uh, you start to get enamored with the fantastic? I think I, you know, I'd enjoyed it as a reader. Um, for a while, I discovered Haruki Murakami at the end of high school, and he's been one of my favorite authors since then. Mm-hmm. And that um, maybe maybe his work sort of opened me up to it as a reader. But as a writer, I didn't try it until um, I believe it was the second year of my MFA program. So this would have been around like 2009 or so. Um, and I tried it just out of sheer frustration that I was, you know, I was trying to write a realistic story and it wasn't working and, and just in a kind of Hail Mary pass sort of way. Like I was like, what if this 
what if this thing just started talking, you know, and it was um, something I sort of just threw at the wall to see if it would stick, but it felt so freeing and it felt playful and exciting. And at the same time, it felt like it enabled me to describe or apprehend or portray reality in a way that was more expansive and somehow more truthful than what I had been doing. You know, I think there's, there is like a wonderful skill and magic to, to describing the world in an accurate, realistic way or, or to writing dialogue that sounds like how people actually talk. You know, that's like, that is an incredible skill. But I think if that's like the only when that was the only skill that I allowed myself, I found, I found my, my writing life getting, getting sort of cramped and it only opened back up when I allowed myself to bend the rules of reality a little bit. Did you find that as you were doing the MFA, did sort of like studying it in that way, seeing behind the curtain of books, did that affect your reading in some ways? Like I know when I was in grad school, it's at a certain level, it's like, I don't even know if I can enjoy books anymore. I feel like I'm just seeing the writing process or I'm, you know, seeing struggles that maybe the author or seeing what they were trying to do, whatever it might be. Was that something that you had to go through? Sure. Yeah. I think I do remember in, in craft classes in the MFA feeling like I was seeing, not seeing behind the curtain so much as, but like kind of seeing the moves someone was making to achieve a, a particular effect. And mm. I wouldn't say it took the magic away. Cause I think when, when someone really does something well, it's not cheapened when you understand a little better how they did it. You know, I think it's like a really great magic trick, maybe like, you know, understanding how they did it just makes it more amazing. You're like, wow, you pulled that off. But I do think now when I, when I read something that for me, isn't quite working, isn't quite doing it for me, I can see why in a way that, you know, maybe 15 years ago, I would have just been like, eh, this book isn't doing it for me. And, and now I can put language to that. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with author Amy Bonifons, whose new novel, The Regrets, is available wherever you get books. When did you decide that you wanted to commit to writing? In my early 20s, I think I, I was like fairly serious about writing in college, but I didn't take a lot of creative writing classes. I think I took two. I knew it was something I wanted to do, but I wasn't sure that it was something that I was going to commit to as a career. Um, I think I saw myself more like being a literature professor and maybe I'd write stuff. And then after college, I lived in Thailand for two years. I went there thinking it would be kind of a gap year thing. And then I'd go to grad school, but I ended up staying there for two years and getting into, I, I was doing work with the refugee women's organization and, um, it felt like very important work. And I was learning a lot about the world and thinking, oh, maybe this is what I'll do. But at the same time, at night, I was writing really furiously, like I kept doing it. And that seemed like an important <laughs> clue, you know, that that even when I was doing this really important work that I felt passionate about, I, um, I always seemed to find time to write. It seemed to be something I needed to do. And I kind of wrestled with that, especially when I started to get burned out from that work, because, you know, how can you possibly justify writing when there's all this suffering in the world, et cetera, et cetera. And eventually I met these writers um, in Burma, now Myanmar, who were, you know, were living in this incredibly repressive society and still just cared so deeply about writing and about poetry and were so excited to talk about it and, you know, would have people smuggle them in books. And I think it was meeting them that kind of was the deciding factor for me because I thought, you know, it's not... There's not really a choice 
it's not like there's this choice between writing and doing something good in the world, you know, because uh, writing and art is something that people need, you know, of course, it's not their most basic need, but um, it's sort of like, for a lot of us, it's what makes it worth it to get up in the morning. And <laughs> that's, just, you know, if we're going to survive, it's like, what for? Mm -hmm. um, and if I, if they could have the courage to pursue their art in this incredibly repressive place, then, then it was actually kind of the opposite of courageous if I didn't pursue my own, if that makes sense. So um, that was what I think pushed me into deciding to take it more seriously. And then I returned to the States and applied to MFA programs and, um, you know, have been basically been on that path ever since. Do you try to merge doing good with your writing? Like, are, are, is there a, an overall goal with the stories you're telling in order to sort of improve the world in some way? Not, not in a direct way, although at least not in my fiction. I, I'm starting to write more nonfiction and that's a little different. But I think that there's something, I think if a story is true, if it feels true, then if that story reaches someone for whom it feels true, then that's a good thing, right? Even if it just makes someone feel less alone or help someone understand their own experience better. And it's not, you know, it may not be a wide scale measurable impact, but it's a small impact and it's an impact I've felt so many times in my own life, right? Like how many times have I been comforted or been meaningfully challenged or understood my own humanity better because of a book. And so, you know, I think that there's like a humility that writers have to kind of embrace along with a sort of, I don't want to say grandiosity, but like a sense that, you know, nobody may ever read this, but if they do, but all I can do is try to be true to myself because if someone does read it, they'll hopefully sense the truth of it and it may resonate with them and that'll be a good thing. Right. So I think even in, you know, most of the fiction I've written thus far, which is not, I, I don't think most people would call overtly political or anything like that. You know, I think just the the intimacy of it and the emotional truth of it is something that I hope will reach people. Um, now that I'm writing more nonfiction, that's what my next project is. I'm, I'm thinking more spe specifically and more directly about social questions and I'm trying to figure out how to do that. But, you know, so my next book is one that I hope will have more of a yeah, more of a easily perceptible social purpose, I guess. But though, of course, you know, anything you put out in the world, you just have to release it into the world and let it do what it's going to do. You can't control its impact in any way. It seems like there's a direct line between what you're talking about and the dedication page and the regrets, your new book. Uh, so I have it mm -hmm. written here. So it's dedicated to, or for everyone stuck between this world and another, and for anyone who struggles to stay here. So, I mean, the, on one level it works because you've got you know, afterlife elements of supernatural, but it seems like that's more of an emotional appeal and emotional connection you're trying to reach. Mm -hmm. um, was that an intention you had in starting the book? Yeah. Although not, maybe not um, consciously at the beginning, you know, I think you just get like an itch that you want to tell a certain kind of story and you figure out how to tell it. And then later you realize what it's for <laughs> um, or who it's for. Um, but I was conscious as I was writing that novel that, one of the things that it was about was the struggle of how to be in the world when trauma or mental illness, I guess, um, or grief or regret <laughs> um, sort of takes you out of it. 
even though you're physically present, right? So um, I think the characters in their various ways deal with that dilemma. Thomas, most obviously, right? Mm -hmm. He's the character who's a who's a ghost, but not a ghost. Um, and Rachel, who you know tries to be in a relationship with him, is faced with this question of like, how do you how do you try to love someone who's both here and not here? And and in doing so, if you begin to lose yourself, where do you draw the line between saving the other person and saving yourself? So I think there, there are a lot of um, real world analogs to, to that situation potentially. And, and there, there are some ways I was thinking of that directly as I was writing. And then there's others that only occurred to me afterwards. It's an interesting way to start the book with that. I mean, it sort of frames it almost like, okay, so these are some of the ideas I should be like, if I'm trying to figure out what your intentions were, were with the book, it's different to start with a dedication page like that versus like for Deborah or whatever. Yeah. Um, was that something that like, did you want to sort of set people off? Like, okay, here are some of the main ideas I'm playing with. Keep these in mind. Not, you know, not so much. I, I really think I, I took the dedication quite literally and, and thought like, you know, who is this book for? Um, who am I writing it for? Um, who did I write it for? Um, and while, you know, I, in answering that question for myself, some specific people came to mind, it seemed to me that this was the common thread, right? That, that I was writing it out of an experience of dealing with that there, but not there-ness. Mm -hmm. And that that's, you know, because it came out of that, that's, that's who I was writing it for, was people who were dealing with that. It's nice. I, I mean, it, it adds like a touch of that personal experience that you're having, as opposed to, you know, like, I think there are a lot of authors where at some point they seem to just give up on creative dedications at all. And it's just, you know, for mm -hmm. a spouse or whatever over and over again, which is fine. I mean, there's nothing wrong <laughs> with that, but yeah. So if we go back to sort of a little bit before that, I know we talked, you mentioned Murakami and uh, I was reading an interview with you earlier today, actually, is before this. Uh, and you were talking about Mur uh, the wind up bird chronicle. Is that, yeah. your, that's, is that your favorite Murakami? Yeah, yes. I would say that's my favorite book of all time. Really? Okay. When did when did that when did you discover it? I believe it was late in high school. I did a um a summer exchange program in Japan my before my senior year of high school. And I think so I read a lot of Japanese books in translation while I was there. And then I later studied Japanese in college and was able to read some of it in the original language. But the first one I read was A Wild Sheep Chase. And I remember just being like, what, what is going on here? What kind of world am I in? This is just wild. Um, and so then I just read whatever else of his I could get my hands on. And I can't remember where Wind Up Bird Chronicle fell in that the lineup, but that was the one that made the biggest impact on me. And that, you know, since I've gone back too many times, I wrote my undergraduate thesis on it. Oh, really? Um, what were you, yeah. what was your focus? Um, I was thinking about the the historical angle and the um, sort of ja uh, Japan's war crimes in Manchuria is, of course, a big theme of the book. And so thinking about how those crimes had been buried and then how they resurfaced in the narrative and how the, the protagonist, you know, begins the novel trying to solve a very personal problem, which is, you know, his wife has disappeared, but somehow he's led through this very dark passage in Japan's national history um, in the process. And so I was trying to think through like how um, or why was this um, reckoning with 
the collective past or with history necessary for his personal reckoning with his situation. And that's mostly what I remember about it. (laughs) I I would probably cringe if I went back and read it, but um, the question at least holds up. And in in some way I think is that's one reason I keep coming back to that book is that I think it deals with the personal and the collective in such an interesting way. Well, it's such a bizarre book too. It just, it feels like there's gotta be so much meaning in here if I just keep looking at it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, yet it resists. Yeah. You, you can't pin it down. Right. Like right. it, you never can, can tie, you, you can't tie up the ending. Um, you can't, you know, set up any sort of like this symbolizes this always kind mm-hmm. of thing, The the mystery of it kind of refuses to be penetrated in the end. Well, and then Murakami seems just completely disinterested in trying to analyze his own work in any meaningful way, mm. or putting it on a pedestal. Uh, is that something, I mean, do you do you see yourself going that, in that way? I mean, do you want people to take apart your work in the same way you did with Murakami? Or do you, you know, do you want to analyze it publicly? Or do you want to be more just like, a, <laughs> you know, these are just dreams. I wake up in the yeah. morning and I write. Where do you land on that? I would say, like, I would answer that two ways. Like, one thing is, you know, of course you know, I'm, I'm honored for anyone to engage with my work in any way, as long as it's, you know, when it's coming from like interest and respect. Um, And so, you know, if, if somebody wrote like their undergrad thesis on my work, I'd be so tickled and delighted and honored. And on the other hand, that's, that's certainly not why I write. Um, And it's interesting, you know, when you, when you have a reader read something, reflect your work back to you and um, they notice a pattern that you weren't conscious of creating, but that's totally there. That's a really cool moment. Um, I feel like I've learned sort of about, I don't know, maybe just more about myself that way than anything else. You know, like, oh, have you noticed that this image turns up in your work a lot? Oh no, I hadn't, but I guess I guess I was obsessed with that without knowing. So it's interesting in that way, but certainly it's not, like I think the writing itself comes from um, a place that's more mysterious and the process of it is what's interesting and what's key, what keeps me returning to it. It's not, it's not, you know, did I create this thing that holds up to analysis? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, it's the process of engaging with the creative mystery or whatever you want to call it that keeps me, keeps me returning. And, and so I understand why Murakami would say like, yeah, you know, do whatever you want, but I don't, I don't really care to analyze my own work because once you've written something and you're done with it, it's like, okay, I'm done with it. What's the next thing? Even when analyzing a work or trying to kind of tease out the patterns or the symbols and things like that, I think there's a way of doing that that still respects the, the mystery at the center of it. And, um, and I think one reason I enjoy working with Murakami is that there's no way to work with his, with his writing that doesn't (laughs) force you to, to um, confront that mystery over and over and over again. After this quick break, I'll continue my conversation with Amy Bonifons, author of the short story collection, The Wrong Heaven, as well as the new novel, The Regrets, which is available wherever you get books. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hello. I want to be a manchi boy. Listen to Omaha's new goofy food podcast, The Munchie Boys. Every week, we get food from a different local restaurant. Let's go. 
We munch. Yes, there is munch. And talk about the experience. What we got. Where did we go? We're still there. Two boxes of food. In lighthearted banter. I just jammed the rest of the Mediterranean in my mouth. Meatball-based items. In a way that is both zany. This is going to be crazy. We might end up throwing up. And fun. My hands are burning. Hell yeah. Every episode features an exclusive song. Where we sing about our weekly adventures and feature a different analog synthesizer. It's a synth model. Play the track now. Now, yeah, we yeah, choose. Yeah. It sounds like haha, bro. Check out Munchie Boys on Spotify, YouTube, streaming or streaming, and most other digital outlets. You probably know that Marie Antoinette never said, let them eat cake. But here's something she did say I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do it. As she was led to the guillotine, Marie Antoinette accidentally stepped on her executioner's foot. Those were her last words. The world is full of ill-fated love affairs, bad decisions, and family drama. But for a monarch, the personal will determine the fate of nations. And when you're wearing a crown, mistakes tend to mean blood. I'm Dana Schwartz, and I'm the host of Noble Blood, a new podcast from iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. Each episode focuses on a single story from the life of one of history's most fascinating royals, from Marie Antoinette during her final days to the cockney butcher who had the world convinced that he might be a long-missing baronet, the tragic, the insane, the murdered, the murderers, and everyone in between. Listen and subscribe at Apple Podcasts or on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today my guest is author Amy Bonifons, who wrote the collection of short stories, The Wrong Heaven, which included a short story called Horse that was adapted into a segment on This American Life. Her new book is The Regrets, which was described by NPR in a review as dazzling, wildly inventive, a miracle of a love story about an affair between the living and the dead. So here's the rest of my conversation with author Amy Bonifons. Like we talk about mundane and surreal and magical realism. I don't know how exactly you classify it, but like what are you trying to, when you're trying to put these stories together, are you conscious that it's like, okay, at some point this is going to take a weird turn? Does it start with the weird turn for you? Or how did you start to put together what became The Wrong Heaven? It depends on the story very much so. And those stories were written over um, a period of 10 years. And so some of them were written while I was still still in my MFA program. Some were written just a couple of years ago. Um, sometimes the, the seed of the story is the magical thing. Like horse is a good example. That idea actually came to me in a dream. Uh, you know, like what if women could just turn themselves into horses? And then sometimes with some stories, like the title story, The Wrong Heaven, um, that's the one I was referring to earlier as, you know, originally it was just going to be about this woman and her spiritual struggle. And it was going to be very realistic. And in the earlier version of the story, she had a son and it was about her conflict with her son largely. And then at some point it did, the story just wasn't going anywhere. And I thought like, okay, what if she literally talked to Jesus and Jesus just wouldn't take any bull from her, you know? And then, um, the story took off in this totally new direction that was so much better. Here's a clip from my guest today, author Amy Bonifons, reading from her short story, The Wrong Heaven. You are loved, said Mary. So, she said, how can we help you today, Cheryl? Well, I said, 
I guess I just like to feel like you're on my side. Mary nodded sympathetically. I think you're doing a bang-up job, she said, under the circumstances. She had a slight British accent, like Julie Andrews. Look, said Jesus, don't take it the wrong way, what I'm about to say. It's just my personality. But have you considered the lilies of the field, the birds, the wild beasts? Do they wonder who's on their side? He made air quotes. I don't know, I said. They don't, he said. And so, I mean, that's a tough tonal balance to find to make it work. Like any any, any story where it's like somebody's talking to Jesus, it's like, okay, this can go a lot of different directions. How do you keep it, you know, working for you still just on a tonal level? Yeah, I don't know if there's like a process I can describe other than just like it, you know, if it feels right, I go with it. But um, surprising myself is important and delighting myself and making myself laugh. <laughs> um, but also not bullshitting. Um, so I think, you know, a, a lot of the, the initial process of writing is, is kind of exploring my own questions, my own very serious questions and trying to, to keep myself entertained while I do so. And then later in the revising process, it's, um, it's more about the reader. So let's talk about Horace just for a second, because that one ended up on This American Life. That's how I, I first heard that, and then that's when I first sought out your writing. Horse is a story about women transforming themselves into horses. And here's a clip from the This American Life dramatization. Over the next few months, the change slowly inched upwards. My human ankles became horse ankles. I grew coarse, caramel-colored hair on my legs. My femurs stretched and thickened. Occasionally, I felt sharp pains in my bones, growing pains, but other than that, the physical transition felt invigorating. My rage, however, only grew. I was energized by aimless, volcanic fury 100% of the time. Perhaps I wasn't changing my nature, but recognizing something that had always been there. My boredom had never really been boredom, but rather a deep, deep anger. Where had this come from? Did everyone have it? My anger was obvious now to everyone I met. I responded to routine rudenesses, catcalling, crowding on the subway, by snarling, flashing my eyes, baring my teeth. People's eyes grew wide. They stepped back. They treated me like the dangerous animal I was. I loved it. How did you get a short story on This American Life? Um, it was, yeah, it was such an amazing, lucky thing that happened. I, uh, my editor was just trying to think of who to send um, a collection, you know, who to send the collection to for early advanced copies. And um, Elna Baker on This American Life was someone that I thought of. And uh, so we sent her a copy and, and it turned out they had this, this story they'd been sitting on for a while about this this monkey who took selfies and there was a legal battle over who owned the selfies and um, they hadn't aired it because they hadn't yet figured out what story to pair it with and what the theme was that they were going to tease out. And so apparently when she read my story, Elna thought, Oh, this is perfect. It's kind of like the, the animal human agency line being blurred in both of these stories and, and, they ended up pairing really well in that episode, I thought. So yeah, that's how it happened. And it was really amazing because it happened quite quickly. And and so um, I was working kind of at a 
fast pace with them to edit the story down for the radio and to make sure that it still made sense. And, and then, you know, the first time I heard it was the first time like the world heard it. Like I was just in my apartment listening, listening to it on the radio and it was this totally surreal experience, but very, very cool and magical. Did it match the tone you had in your head? Yes, absolutely. And it felt like something different. Mm-hmm. Not in a bad way. It, it, the the way I described it to people at the time was it felt like I was the reader, um, like I was encountering someone else's work that just for some reason was very resonant with me <laughs> more than hearing my own work read back to me. Like it was just made strange enough that it was slightly unfamiliar to me and that I felt like I experienced it as as the audience or as the reader, which was really cool. When I uh, first heard there was a new Netflix movie coming out called Horse Girl, I immediately got excited. I was like, oh, I hope they adapted it. That'd be amazing. But, uh, <laughs> I know. I watched that. I, I, I thought like, oh, oh, God, did someone take my idea? <laughs> Just um, but no, it was, it was very, very different. Yeah. Uh, that you know Hollywood does that occasionally though where it's just like two of the two people are doing the same idea it would definitely be strange if it's two movies about women turning into horses or coming out at the same time or two different stories and I mean I think like it's funny because you know of course like people do steal each other's ideas but I think the thing that happens more often is that two people have the same great idea at the same time so I was more worried it was that I was like oh no did someone make a movie of of this idea and now that's gonna be the thing anyway but yeah it was a cool, weird movie, wasn't it? It was. It was weird. I was, you know, I resent it just because it's not your story, honestly. I really <laughs> love the story. So It wasn't very much about horses. No, not not as much as the title yeah. would suggest. Uh, no. Did you have any idea when you were writing Horse that it would reach such a big audience or take off in the way no. it did? No. No, that was, I mean, that's been maybe the coolest thing that's happened in my life as a writer. Because even, you know, even publishing a book, you don't necessarily reach that many people unless you have, unless it's like an unusual kind of breakout bestseller. But to have that many people hear my work all at once before I even had a book out was really, really wild. Like I just, you know, I had a lot of people reaching out to me over email and social media and saying that it had resonated in this or that way. And I I don't think that's an experience most writers get to have. So I I felt very, very lucky to experience that. Now you do have a book out, The Regrets, your debut novel. That Mm -hmm. must be exciting and kind of daunting at the same time just to have it out in the world. Uh, how do you feel about yeah. it being out? It feels good. Uh, um, that book I had I had worked on for almost 10 years. Like I was working on the story collection simultaneously to that. Um, but the novel felt like the big Sisyphean task of the last decade of my life. And, and, you know, I wrote many, many drafts of it. There were many times when I wondered, like, will this ever be finished? Will anyone ever want to publish this? Am I just wasting all this effort? You know, and so... Um, you know, the, the short story stories came out two years ago. Um, and, and so that was my first book. And that was like a milestone in that way. But this in a way felt like it felt more significant because it was the book I put like blood, sweat and tears into in just a different sort of way. So I was really just glad that it finally happened and that it was done. You know? um, but at the same time, I'm really glad that I had an experience publishing the short story collection beforehand because I felt like I knew what to expect and not expect from a book's publication, you know, and in many ways it is, you know, I had, I had moments where I was just, you know, like over the moon at the fact that this book now existed. And then there's also a lot of moments that you 
kind of expect to feel climactic and that don't. And it's not like, you know, the world suddenly changes and falls at your feet the day that your book comes out. Like most people don't notice or care. So, um, and so I knew to expect that. And I knew just to try to enjoy the moments I could and, and kind of take care of my energy in the ways that I could. And yeah, it's, it's been good. It was also a weird time to publish a book because it came out in early February and I did, you know, a month or so of touring and then the, the whole world just stopped. Right. So, um, I hope people now have time to read and, and, the, <laughs> and they're reading good books, but, um, but yeah, it's kind of, kind of weird to think that just a couple months ago I was like traveling all over the country. Did it always have the same structure where it was segmented by characters? Yeah. So it, um, I think I realized pretty early on that it would have to have multiple narrators. Part of that is just because I'm really not very good at writing in the third person. It doesn't come naturally to me. And so I knew that it was a story about these lovers and that both of their perspectives were really important. And so it would it would have at least two voices, right? And they would both have to be in the first person. And then um, at one point it started to seem important that there be a third voice because otherwise the book could have easily become claustrophobic. You know, we're, we're shut up in this very insular world of, that these lovers have created with each other. Um, and triangulation I think is important for perspective. So, so then there was a third narrator and I'll I'll say that at different points in the writing of the book, there were other narrators who I ended up cutting, um, who are now either secondary characters or just aren't in the book at all. So that was probably the biggest craft challenge of the whole writing process was figuring out who was telling the story at what point and how to juggle all those narratives. But it was through doing that that I figured out what the story really was. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with author Amy Bonifons, whose new book, The Regrets, is out now. It's a tough story to, I imagine, wrap up in some ways, right? I mean, you've got all these elements, like whether it's ghosts, whether it's, uh, you know, doctors who deal with the occult. And so like, mm-hmm. I'm, at some point, I know, like halfway through reading it, I was wondering, is this going to get even more ridiculous and absurd? Are we going to have like some crazy seance climax or something? Uh, I mean, how did you find what felt real and what felt honest while working with a lot of these paranormal elements in the book? Ooh, that was a, that was why it took so long. <laughs> it was really hard to do that. Um, because part of the challenge in writing a book like this is that, you know, I set up this metaphysical world at the beginning where in which, you know, like the character goes to the afterlife and learns at least something about what the afterlife looks like and how it's set up and how it works. And so then you know, I thought to myself, well, readers are going to be expecting to get some kind of resolution on or or some sort of further revelation as to how the afterlife functions. And that's going to be an expectation they have. And so I tried in many different ways to do that, to find ways to fulfill that expectation. And just none of them felt true or right. And in the end, I decided that there were just things I had to leave um, as a mystery Um, and that was what ended up feeling, feeling right. And so, you know, not to give any spoilers away for people who haven't read the book. Right. But, um, I think, you know, we see the, the character reach a sort of resolution and we sent, we feel, I hope that he's reached a kind of resolution without knowing exactly what that looks like. And that, I don't know, I had to, I had to write and scrap a lot of pages before I arrived at that decision. 
Was it a bigger book at some point? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, at some point, it was probably twice the length that it ended up being. And I was so glad when I finally figured out that it just wanted to be a slimmer book. It was not going to be this tome. Um, then, you know, there was a lot of weight off my shoulders. <laughs> Do you still have a tome in you then at some point you want to write your big, your big book? <laughs> Who knows? We'll see. <laughs> you said the next one's nonfiction, right? Mm-hmm. What's the subject of that one? So the idea of the book came about when I read a memoir that my great grandmother had written and she wrote this memoir in the 1940s and she intended to publish it, but never did. And it's about her growing up on a homestead in Southwestern Oklahoma. Her family was, you know, they were settlers out there and they got land through the Homestead Act and farmed it and eventually owned it. And um, it was fascinating to read this, this memoir that she'd written of her childhood, partly just because of, you know, the details of, of her life were interesting, but also I felt like I could kind of read between the lines and, and um, feel who she was as a person. And I could feel this resonance between her and my grandmother and my mother and myself. And so I became interested in, in sort of writing about those relationships and it's taken me in a lot of different directions. I've, I've done some research into my grandmother's or my great grandmother's world that she was writing about. Yeah. And I've explored kind of, um, you know, that side of my family was very strict fundamentalist Christians. And there was a lot of, you know, they subscribed to basically the most, just like the most intense and restrictive um, version of the Bible and of Christian ideology. And in, in a way that, that was, I think, very repressive towards women. And so part of what I'm trying to do in the book is investigate that and think about Christianity as a myth and about what other myths are out there and about like different ways that that myth has been treated. And so it is nonfiction, but it, it, it is also mythic. And there are, there are elements of what I've written that, that are more like fiction or myth that are kind of interwoven with the part that's more like a memoir of family history. So it's, it's a little all over the place, but it, it feels really, um, yeah, it just feels really good to be, um, investigating, like directly investigating questions that I've wanted to investigate for a while and in a way that's both personal and historical and mythic, I guess. Well, it, it almost sounds like a, like an element in it. one of the stories you'd write. It's like you just find this memoir, this unpublished memoir. Uh-huh. That's, that's like the start of however many fantasy stories or whatever. But uh, uh-huh. how, how did you come across the unpublished memoir? Well, we'd, I, I'd known it existed for a while. My, oh, my grandmother, so that, you know, the daughter of the author had had um, saved it and had given us copies. And I think just when I was younger, I didn't think it was that interesting. I was like, oh, it's going to be this like boring thing that, you know, my ancestor wrote and it'll be interesting for like genealogical reasons, but otherwise who cares, you know? And I think it was, maybe it's just because of whatever was going on in my life at the time. I just felt compelled to pick it up and, and realize that it actually felt really resonant and really interesting. Do you have a family with a lot of writers in it or are you two, the, the two that stick out as far as that goes? Well, it's interesting. This is part of what I'm, I'm exploring and writing about is that no, there aren't a lot of writers in the family, but of course it's, it's not as though women have had that many opportunities to, to explore that lifestyle or to make a living from it. Um, I mean, and, and before a certain point in, in history, I mean, neither the, the men in my family wouldn't have been able to either. They just wouldn't have, have had that educational opportunity or the, you know, just 
the privilege in various ways to live an artistic life. But my, so this great grandmother wrote this memoir. My mother, um, she's a social worker now, but she was an actress for many years. Really, really creative, brilliant person. And um, my grandmother, I always thought she didn't really have that in her. And then I learned, you know, um, recently, um, she died last year and it was just maybe the year before that, that um, I talked to her and it came out that she had been very active in theater when she was young and she only quit when she got married. And so I came to feel like I have this, this line of very artistic women in my family, but I'm really the first one who's been able to pursue it without any barriers or obstacles. And that in some way, what I'm, um, what I'm investigating is, is that line of sort of like what happens to creative expression when it is repressed or when it's not allowed. Um, and, and in what ways can I find to express that? That sounds fascinating. Um, I'm excited to read that one. Thanks. Um, (laughs) Thanks. We'll see how long it takes. (laughs) (laughs) Has it been a difficult struggle to switch to writing, uh, you know, memoir in a way that, I mean, you said there are mythic elements. So is that your way of sort of, you know, scratching that itch of like, all right, how can I throw some, some strangeness in here? Uh, or is it, has it been kind of an interesting or uh, maybe welcome change of pace? It, it has been welcome to have a change of pace for sure, because I think writing a novel is like running a marathon and, and like, not that this, I mean, I don't know, maybe this is like a triathlon rather than a marathon or something. It's like just as long, but it's more, it feels more varied and it feels like it requires different skills and different questions. I don't think I could have done the same thing immediately afterwards. It was a challenge to switch to writing first person from my own perspective, because I feel like the way I write fiction for the most part is that something akin to channeling, you know, like I get, I hear a voice and I kind of get the voice down and then I can just go, you know? And so in writing nonfiction, the question is like, well, I'm not channeling someone else's voice. So what is my voice? Because of course, each of us has a number of voices that we use. It depends on the audience and the context and the, you know, who we're talking to and what we're trying to say. And so I've written in a lot of different voices for this book so far. Some are more academic, some are more lyrical, some are more, um, you know, something in between. And I don't know what's going to survive the creation and, and revision process, but it feels like, you know, exploring the flexibility of my own nonfiction voice um, has been part of what's been interesting about the project and formal experimentation has been another thing that's been really interesting. I think um, I was not interested in writing like a straight linear memoir. It wouldn't have worked with this material anyway, but you know, there, I think there's such interesting experimentation happening in nonfiction these days that um, it felt, you know, it didn't feel like a, incredibly rebellious or subversive thing to do to think like oh I'm going to mix personal history and collective history or I'm going to jump back and forth in time or I'm going to have some fictional elements and mixed in with the nonfiction, right like Maxine Honkingston was doing that with Woman Warrior and um, many other people have expanded the uh, genre of nonfiction in in fascinating ways recently. So, um, so yeah, the, the permission to experiment felt really exciting and at times daunting because when you have that kind of freedom, like where do you begin? Um, 
but I think after writing, a, um, you know, spending the last 10 years of my life telling this one story, it feels very freeing. It sounds like in some ways it goes back to ideas you were playing with even as you're in your undergraduate thesis, right? With Wind Up Bird. You're kind of, yeah. you're, you're applying yeah. that to your own life now. Totally. You know, it's funny in, in answering your earlier question about Wind Up Bird and hearing myself say that, I was like, oh. God, is that what I'm doing now? Am I <laughs> am I living my own wind up bird chronicles? Perhaps. <laughs> All right. So one more question before I let you go is one of my <laughs> listeners when I said I was going to talk to you said I have to ask if you're happy being a human right now or if you'd rather be a horse. <laughs> um, you know, the truth is, I think like obviously I I wouldn't have written that story if I didn't have if there wasn't some part of me that um, enjoyed the fantasy of becoming a horse. But the truth is that I really love being human. And I, I think accepting the challenge of being human is um, a huge and exciting and terrifying and, and joyful project. And, um, and so, no, I wouldn't want to be a horse. Um, it would be cool to become a horse like for, you know, like once in a while to snap my fingers and be a horse for half an hour and then change back. But um <laughs> But no, I, I think especially at this moment in time when like everything is changing and and there's a feeling that like we we kind of, the world kind of needs everybody to just like jump in and do the right thing. Like I'm really glad to to be a human. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. Amy Bonifon's books are available everywhere that you look for books. There are ebooks, audiobooks, and just plain old paperbacks and hardcovers. Her new novel, The Regrets, came out in February. It is a supernatural love story, although that doesn't do it justice. It's much more complicated and much richer than that. Also, be sure to check out her short story collection, The Wrong Heaven, which features horse. The amazing short story, one of my all-time favorite short stories that was dramatized by This American Life. That's in the collection, The Wrong Heaven. Check out that and the regrets today wherever you get your books. Riverside Chats is produced in conjunction with KIOS and Exarban Creative. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork and website are run by Ben Matukowitz. You can find our backlog of episodes wherever you get podcasts. Go into any podcast app, search Riverside Chats, and they will all be there. While you're in that podcast app, you may as well go ahead and give us a review. If you like what we're doing here, we appreciate you getting the word out. Give a quick review, rate us, and we'll continue to give you great content. Next week, we have another conversation. This one is not done through Zoom. It is one that I recorded before the pandemic forced us to isolate ourselves. Uh, and that will be a conversation with Sally Walker, who is a screenwriter and just literally wrote the book on screenwriting. So stay tuned next week for that conversation. As always, thank you for listening. I am Tom Noblock. <laughs>